My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight is a very special show. Not one, but two legends in the law enforcement community. I was introduced to these guys through Ralph Friedman and our conversation. The first, Bob Starkman. He's a man with 38 years in law enforcement, 25 of those being with U.S. Customs. His career has produced numbers such as 3,000-plus kilos of cocaine, 6-plus tons of marijuana, and 12-plus million dollars in seized funds. He was the real deal Miami Vice, working during the volatile cocaine cowboy days. He's also a junior college basketball Hall of Fame coach. And the second legend tonight is Joe Pistone. You might know him better by his undercover name of Donnie Brasco. During a six-year deep undercover investigation, Joe was able to infiltrate at least two of the Big Five Mafia families. His investigations led to over 240 convictions, a devastating blow by any means to organized crime. His investigations also led to a $500,000 bounty being placed on his head. It's my pleasure and honor to welcome these guys into the studio. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I'm glad uh, I'm glad we got this finally worked out and everything, and we're ready to go. So I've got a ton of questions for you guys. Uh, you both have had super interesting careers, and uh, I, I want to see how they kind of mirror each other and how they're different from each other. So, Bob, let's start with you. You always wanted to be in law enforcement. Uh, you went through it by a different route of corrections officer and different things like that. Um, what was it that made you want to be in law enforcement? Well, it was a funny story. Uh, besides going to a, uh, I used to work out in the YMCA when I was playing college basketball, there was a lot of cops and firemen there. And, you know, we were in our early 20s and, you know, just talking to them and hearing them and meeting with them, it sounded interesting. But uh, my senior year in college, uh, we were out in the Hampton Bays. Uh, a bunch of us rented a summer home. And I remember getting up one Sunday morning and I was reading the color section of the, uh, New York Daily News, and there was an article about New York's most decorated detective. And I kind of read it. It kind of intrigued me and set me forth, you know, going out and taking some police tests. Uh, Joe, how about you? What What was it that put you into a career of law enforcement? Well, I always wanted to, wanted to get into law enforcement. I figured I'd start out as a, uh, or be a police officer. Uh, <clears throat> when I was a senior in college, I took the exam. Uh, passed it, but then I found out uh, when I had to go to the academy, I'd have to drop out of college. So I didn't want to, you know, drop out of college in my senior year. So uh, <clears throat> after college, uh, I went into naval intelligence, spent several years there, and uh, was actually recruited by uh, the FBI and uh, DEA, which back then DEA was a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. I took the exam for both and uh, got uh, got called first for uh, from the FBI. So, you know, I figured if, 
if I'm going to go into law enforcement, I better I might as well go into the best federal agency there was at the time. And uh, so I took the uh, acceptance to the FBI. Do you think that career in naval intelligence first helped you out in your law enforcement career and, and moreover in your undercover career? I think so. I mean, because I got the, you know, uh, I got the start as far as uh, uh, being a pretty good investigator by investigating a merit of, uh, of crimes, um, murders, drugs, uh, fugitives, uh, counterintelligence. Because, you know, when, you, <clears throat> when you're in the uh, uh, either na- naval intelligence uh or Army CID or whatever, you know, you're investigating every crime that's committed at a government facility or that uh, involves a, a government employee. So, yes, I did. And, Bob, with you, uh, you started out in corrections. Uh, it was you, you always aspired to be NYPD, but you started out in corrections. And there was something special about your class uh, only being in the academy for like two days and then being thrown into the fires of hell right away. Uh, what was it about that two days that kind of emboldened you in that career? Because even though that wasn't what you were looking for at the end of your career or what you aspired to be, you grabbed it with, you know, by the horns and just embraced that job. Well, in the seventies with all the layoffs in the city, you know, with the fiscal problems, I would take every exam possible that, you know, was given. So state correction called me first. I actually got called a couple months before I accepted the position there. He had a strike and there was no way I was going to be a scab and, you know, go take a job where I have to work with guys that are out, you know, basically looking to get a better environment for them to work at. So a few months later, I believe it was July of 80, I got called and uh, the letter basically said, uh, Report to the State Academy in Albany, whatever it was, Thursday morning, Wednesday, and uh, we were there for two days. And that Friday, drove home from Albany, and Monday morning, I had a report to Greenhaven State Prison. So we were known as the two-day wonders. Two days in the Academy, I said, fed right to the wolves. And uh, the experience there was unbelievable. So the question to that would be, when you go through that and you're thrown right in after two days, uh, it's a little different than today's, you know, you have to go through background and, you know, it takes six, seven months to get on the job. And then you're in the Academy, another six to nine months. There's so much done. Do you think that helped you or hurt you, uh, by giving you kind of that crash course and throwing you right in because you're in with guys that have already been convicted of their crimes, uh, are, true, true criminals and, and are bettering their game while they're in prison. Do you think that helped or hindered you by doing that crash course? Well, it definitely helped, you know, prior to uh, getting hired, I was a bouncer and a boss. So I guess I was, uh, that was my prerequisite, but going in, you know, times are different now, you know, 40 something years ago, it was a different job like any law enforcement job was, but you actually learn the job. And I, I think the best part was it kind of makes or breaks you. You know, you see what you're made of. Can you handle it? And, you know, in a jail, you're learning, you know, it's a different basic. You know, you're in their city. You know, when I say the city, you know, with the inmates around you, you learn real fast. And uh, I think it helped me. And then a few months later, we went back to the academy, and which was really easy because here we are, you know, in a maximum security prison. 
Well, I want to talk about, you know, you just said that it's different in any law enforcement career now than it was back then. I wanted to point out something that happened uh, late last night, early this morning. Five Phoenix police officers were shot uh, early, early this morning. Um, and I'm not sure if the standoff is still going on, but uh, what had happened was a man uh, barricaded himself in the house. As the first officer, responding officer, approached, he took gunfire, uh, is in critical condition. They think he's going to recover. At some point in the, the standoff, there was a baby brought out. When officers went to rescue the baby and pull it, they came under fire and all four were hit. Uh, a woman in the house was hit and is in critical condition. I say all that to say this. Of course, there were shootings back in your day. Do you think that we have become a lax society on criminals or on laws and that we're seeing an exponential rise in shootings, harming of police officers, ambushes, uh, different things like that? Is there one, do you see that there's a difference? Do you think it's more dangerous now, back then? Is it the same? And then two on that. Is there anything we can do to fix the situation? Uh, better DAs? Uh, I, I don't know, but is there anything? So first, let's start out with the differences back then and today. Well, I think it's more dangerous today, definitely. And uh, a lot of it, you, you, you hit one on, on the head, DAs. You got liberal DAs that don't believe in incarceration. I mean, how could you... How could you let somebody that beat somebody over the head with a bat out? How could, how could there be no no repercussions for them? Uh, just take New York City, Chicago. And New York City is like the Wild West. Uh, stores are closing because they're losing so much money from just shoplifting. I mean... Uh, <clears throat> Letting, letting people out that, that push people onto the subway, cops bring them to the station, they make an arrest, and the DA releases them. I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, you got to get new DAs in there. You got to get DAs that believe in the system. Uh, you commit a crime, uh, you get charged, you go to jail, and, you know, if you don't make the bail, you don't, uh, you sit in jail until your trial. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally out of control. And I think that's why, why violence against cops uh, has increased because the perps know that uh, chances are they're, they're going to they're gonna skate on it. Uh, <clears throat> I just, we were watching, I was watching the news, I don't know, it was last night or this morning, and I think it's Illinois. Uh, in in drive-by shootings, if it if the wrong person gets shot, they don't want to charge. They don't want to charge the, the the shooter for murder. Right. Yeah. I think so, that's actually in Chicago that you're talking well, about. Well, Illinois. Yeah. I mean, so the babies, you know, the the, the children that got shot in these drive-bys, it's okay. Oh, you know. I'm the shooter. Jeez, I missed my target, but I shot a, I, I shot a, you know, a one-year-old. Well, that that's all right, you know. Uh, I mean, it's totally out of control with these uh, these DAs, liberal DAs and liberal mayors. I mean, you know, uh, 
the citizens got to, you know, they got to wake up and take more of an interest in what the hell's going on. Bob? Well, I think the fear factor has switched. I think, you know, law enforcement cops and they're more fearful of getting in trouble for doing their job, while the bad guys know there's no fear because nothing's going to happen to them. You know, it's it's just the way it's revolved. It's just that, you know, we could walk down a tier. And, you know, to me, it's anywhere, whether you're playing basketball, whether you're outside in the street, don't put your hand on somebody unless you expect to get hit back. And you can't when you can't defend yourself. Now, listen, you know, all of these politicians, I, I'm sick of hearing, you know, about the police brutality, this, that. Listen, for every one bad guy, there's 5,000 good guys. And the problem is that these politicians do not live in the areas or even in the city which they represent. And until something happens to them, again, they have no fear because they don't live there. They have their bodyguards. They have their police protection. You know, the average citizen <clears throat> does not. Yeah, it's, it's kind of ironic that the, that the politicians that call for defunding the police, they, they all got their security, though, around them. Yeah, yeah. They ought to to do away with their security. Yeah, you know, and I I think it was brought up by Bob, not to interrupt, but I think it was brought up by Bob, a a good point where uh, criminals aren't scared of the prosecution. Police are more scared of doing their job. Uh, And I think there's been, once again, an exponential rise in charging police officers. Uh, Dallas yesterday just charged two police officers during the riots that happened with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and official oppression uh, without a grand jury. They went directly to charging them, um, and I I completely what agree. They, what they charge the rioters with? Uh, nothing. Uh, there was hardly any arrests. Uh, there were arrests made, but then charges were dropped for a bunch of different reasons, uh, they said. But it seemed more... To me, whenever you talk about the different cities that happen around Seattle, Minneapolis, Chicago, where cities were burning, it seemed more that governments and uh, people in power wanted to show that they were with the people than that they were with the people that were protecting the people. Right. Well, what about the, the, I forget what city it was, but during during the riots, one of the uh, rioters said, set fire to a building and, and and an innocent person in the building died, got burnt to death. But they're not going to charge the individual that set the fire with murder uh, because he did it during a protest. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Do you think, and I want to ask about you guys' past on it, do you think, and it's going to sound crazy, but do you think criminals had more of a code when you guys were working than they do now? Do you think it's just anything and everything, or was there a code? And and especially like with you, uh, Joe, working with inside the mafia, was there an ethics? Was there a code? As crazy as that may sound, was it a different time for even criminals back then? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, my expertise is the mafia, but the, you know, the, the Italian mafia, but yeah, they had a code, you know, people that they killed or whacked, however you want to, whatever term you want to use, were individuals that were associated with them. Uh, <clears throat> anybody that, that the mafia killed was either a, a member that got caught doing something against their rules or 
was a non-member that was involved in illegal business with him. And, you know, and either tried to screw him out of money or violated one of the mafia's rules. Uh, they didn't go in and just shoot up a place. If they, you know, if they were looking for me and I'm in a restaurant, they don't, they wouldn't go in a restaurant and shoot the whole restaurant up to get to me. So to answer your question, yeah, they, you know, I think they, 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 they do have a code. They did have a code. And I, and I still think the mafia still does have that type of, uh, that, that type of a uh, code. Um, you know, and today they, you know, you got the, let's face it, drugs are crazy. Um, and that's another thing too. Not many mob guys, uh, or drug addicts, you know, uh, because their own, the, the, the mafia would kill them. They, you know, they may be involved in, 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 in distribution and selling, but there weren't many addicts. Uh, so. Same to you, Bob, because although you guys work mainly both of you in, in organized criminal activity, you were working with a different set of people, uh, people importing, uh, drugs, um, uh, people that were coming from other countries. Same question to you though. Was there a code back then? Was it all out war? Was it the wild west? Compare it to today's times. Well, what I always say is that, you know, working when it came to Miami, you know, you're working with the, you know, cartels are controlling the importation and, you know, the uh, movement of the money. But it's like a business the way you have it, you know, they have it set up. Now, don't get me wrong, they're dangerous. But for instance, it may be a guy watching the stash house, one guy's watching a load, one guy may be involved with the transportation. You know, I compare that when you're dealing with a street guy that's selling, you know, maybe five nickel bags, who's probably a junkie or high, you know, that's his livelihood. So you may have more of a problem with that guy with the $20 worth of crack or, you know, Coke than a guy with a ton of Coke. Now, don't, there was violence always, you know, but I, I think there was more of a kind of like a separation, you know what I mean? Like a street level guy and then deal with an organization. They were all dangerous, but again, the guys watching the houses or, you know, the loads that we got coming in on boats, they weren't usually high. You know, then again, a guy in the street or maybe the recipients of part of these loads were. So to answer the question, I think it varies, you know, like more organizational isn't as dangerous. Yet they are dangerous. Don't get me wrong. Compared to a guy, you know, let's say a cop making an undercover buy for five kilo, uh, five nickel bags. Now, five kilos, that's another story and a buff. So I, I guess what you're saying is it, as as you go up, it's more of a business than a livelihood. Right. But then again, the other problem is I've seen on numerous occasions where, you know, we hit a house and we seized money or dope. And, you know, they would sometimes they would cooperate. Sometimes they weren't. And sometimes these guys were never heard from again. Right. You know, when they lost the load, they kind of took care of their own. But then again, like I said, on the flip side of a coin, there's been shootings. There's been guns drawn. You know what I mean? It, it varies. But. I, I just think it, it all depends on the individual and maybe the organization where, you know, some Colombians might be different from, let's say, a Jamaican organization or, you know, but I know the South Americans kind of have their own little code. Well, in, in doing cop work, doing law enforcement work, I believe that our greatest weapon is our mind and being able to talk to people. 
And that's what's always interested me from reading your book, Bob, listening to to stuff that you've done in the past, looking at your book, Joe. You've always been able to talk to criminals. Now, there is a very big distinction between the two. Bob, you have always been a quote-unquote cop. Joe, on the other hand, has been a bad guy and a cop. Now, the way I want to talk about it is, Bob, starting with you, being able to talk, and you talked about it when you worked in the prison, when you worked in the jail, and then being able to work informants and people when you worked with customs. How important was it, and what? how did you learn how to talk to people being a cop, but being able to control the criminal element with no physical action? Well, I, I think also part of it starts with my upbringing, you know, growing up in New York, I think a lot of it has to do with my personality. But I tell everybody, and I, I believe uh, the LA sheriffs used to put guys before they went out on the road, I believe they had to work in jail for a year or two. Now, when you're in jail, you know, <clears throat> and I use Greenhaven as an example, I believe we had 1900 plus inmates. Every one of them is in there for, you know, they only got caught for one charge, maybe two, but you're dealing with multiple personalities on each person. You know, you're, you're in their city, you know, you're in there, it's you and them. There's nothing else out there. So you learn about body lingo, you know, you learn, you know, just the way they speak. I see, I said by body movements, I meant their lingo, the way they speak, uh, even just the, the tone of voice, you know, you, you, you could kind of pick up when they're lying, when they're, you know, they're trying to get over on you. You learn so much. And to me, that was the best prerequisite to going out working in the street and especially with customs. And, you know, you just learn so much about people. And, you know, then you learn, you know, like how I may talk to Joe, I may not talk to you like, you know what I mean? There's certain, right. you develop your own little uh, pattern. And, and that was to me, the, the jail part was just, it, it. you can't get too much better than that. Joe, same question to you. Uh, and then I want to go into a specific about talking to people with you. So what do you think it was that taught you how to talk to people uh, and how important you thought it was in your career? Well, uh, just like Bob, I think it, a, a lot has to do with your background, how you grew up. You know, I mean, I, I grew up in a, you know, middle class neighborhood, uh, mob guys, you know, mob guys in the neighborhood. So I knew mob guys growing up. I knew, I you know, I knew thieves growing up, but I was always taught by my parents, you know, you show everybody respect. Uh, you don't, you know, uh, and that had a lot to do with it. And I, I think too, and I find in, in a lot of my uh, undercover schools that I that I uh, that I do, is that uh, the young the young people today they don't have any communication skills because everything is on the phone, they, everything is texting, they text everything, uh, <clears throat> and in undercover, you know that that that's your main tool in undercover is being able to to communicate. I mean, you you don't ingratiate yourself with. Uh, with a gangster by texting them. <laughs> it's by face-to-face -face communicating, talking to them. Uh, and I think that's the thing that helped that helped us is that during our day, you know, there was no texting. Everything you had to get across to somebody had to be verbal communication. Well, I want to talk about a specific point with you. When I was going through your book, there was a point, and, and I'm not sure of the guy's name, but he always carried a knife with him. Uh, you were in a restaurant, and he was talking loud to a woman. You told him, I don't think you ought to do that. 
um, and he really talked bad to you. Now, you didn't say anything there because, of course, as we've already talked about, there's rules to the game. There's different things that you have to do. But when you saw this guy afterward, you said, let's take a walk. You go on a walk with him and you tell him, look, don't you ever talk to me like that in front of people again. Were you at all worried about saying that because there were rules to the game or was it more important to set a precedence to show them you don't treat me this way and I won't treat you that way? Well, I had to set a precedent because, uh, you know, you can't lose you can't lose your credibility or respect on the street. Now, when that incident took place, we were with other wise guys and I couldn't come back at him because he was a wise guy. And that's one of the rules of the mafia is that uh, you don't insult the wise guy in front of other people. And, and you know, and at that time, I'm an associate. Uh, so I can't come back at him. But when we're, when we're alone one-on-one, I can. And I had to set, you know, set the rules down that, hey, look, you know, uh, I'm not just some, you know, some guy on the street here, you know, you got to treat me with some respect too. And if it happens again, you know, I'll stab you in the back, you know, uh, I'll come at you when you won't know know it. But see, that's the thing, like Bob said in the jails, you got to let these people know where, where you stand. I mean, you can't ever back down. You ever back down, you're done. You're done. You know, and like I say, respect and credibility are the two main, you know, I mean, you know that on the street. You lose either one of those, especially in an undercover situation when you're dealing with uh, with violent guys, violent uh, individuals, a violent gang. Uh, you lose that, and they don't have any any compunction about just killing you and get rid of you. Well, uh, and to, so. to go back to you, Bob, uh, Joe brings up a good point. You know, when he's talking to this guy, he said, if you ever talk to me like that, I'll stab you in the back. Of course, it was a character, but he meant there was a level of meaning that to him. With you working in a prison, especially today in law enforcement, you can't talk like that to people. You can't threaten them with the violence that would ensue if they were to do that. So when you're talking to someone and you're not backing down from a Bob while you're working in the prison, how do you do that? Well, it, it's the same thing. You know, you have to let them know you're the boss. And that, that, listen, I, I'm a big guy, but I've seen guys that were five foot five. They put a uniform on. Now, all of a sudden, they think they're bigger than me. It right. wasn't about my size. I could always present myself. I, I'm not, you know, I don't go in like a tough guy. But again, my best weapon in jail was, you know, my communication skills. And, and one of the points I forgot, and I'm sure it's applicable to Joe, too, we both played high school and college basketball. You know, you have to communicate, whether it's on the court, you know, while you're sitting there. And, and a lot of that adds in, you know, too. like, you know what I mean? I'm not talking about talking crap when you're playing. I'm talking about in practice, maybe talking to another teammate. So everything goes back. But back to the jail, you know, they're smart. They know every move you make. They know when you don't shave. They know when you have a different pair of shoes on, if your belt isn't on right. And you have to be on top of the game. And again, you have to always be one up on them. And too many times, and I, you know, I saw, you know, uh, I joke and I say, you know, a female that might be a, uh, a minus six on the street is a plus 15 in the jail. And, and don't get me wrong, I've seen guys and they get scared. And an inmate will try to intimidate them verbally 
by, you know, I'm going to protect you. This is what's going to happen if I don't, you know, all of that. I've seen it with men too. And, you know, that's why guys start bringing dope in, why women start, you know, performing different things, let's just say. And, and again, it's because you have to be, they can't see weakness. And, and, and that's the, you, you have to be, you have to have that in you. No weakness. Well, you actually had that happen with a female that you worked with that uh, it was found out later on, and I think she got in trouble. I can't remember if you said that she was uh, convicted or anything, but that she had developed a relationship with uh, mafia uh, people that were in the prison. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, actually, funny story about that. Uh, we were walking our first day in Greenhaven. There's two-day wonders. It was kind of like a James Cagney movie. We're walking in the courtyard. <laughs> White heat. Yeah, you know, like this <laughs> all over the place. And the inmates, you know, just, it was eerie. It was raining out. It was July, whatever, 25th, I think the date was. I still remember. And it was like a movie. And, you know, we're marching two by two. I think maybe there was 40 of us. I don't know. And the inmates, you could just imagine the vulgar things they were saying. So she turns around, she was really good looking. I mean, she was a legit 12, you know, and she says, to me, she says uh, hey, are they saying that to me? I looked at her, I go, they sure as hell aren't saying that to me. And then I heard later on, I was gone already, that uh, she was involved with some mob guy. And I don't know if she was seen, you know, when he was on either work release or got out of jail, whatever it was, in a club with him. And unfortunately, I found out she had passed away from cancer, too. But it's just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, again, it's how you communicate, you know, are you the weak or are you the strong, you know, you, you want to be the strong. Well, I think it's a good point that you brought up about the shaving and shoes, because I don't think people that aren't in law enforcement realize how much attention that real criminals or real people from the street pay attention to that. I know when I was in uniform and you have your beat, criminals would know what days you worked, what hours you worked. If you were there on a day that you weren't supposed to be, if you were working like a special shift or something, they would always ask, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. They would know what guys were coming on after you. And they knew when they could move around and when they couldn't. Uh, and I don't think that the general public understands how close attention that they pay to everything going on around them. And it's a good point that you bring up that they even notice things like, Hey, you didn't shave. Hey, you didn't, you know? Well, on that note, uh, when I got called to be a city correction officer, we're on Rikers Island, you know, in training and, you know, they're marching you through and, you know, you have your, whatever you call them, like the, uh, I don't know, class B uniforms, whatever they're called. I forgot. So we're walking, you know, there's maybe 12 of us and some inmate yells out and he looks at me, he goes, man, you ain't no new Jack. So I look at him, I said, what are you talking about? He goes, look at your shoes, look at your belt, and look at your keychain. Well, I had a keychain that all state correctionals were able to buy in this bar, Tower 13, across from the jail. My belt was scuffed up from, you know, use, and my shoes weren't, you know, shiny shoes. And that just amazed me. Like, they knew who was, you know, a former CO or something in Lawrenceville just by looking at my belt, my keychain, and the shoes I had on. And, and it's amazing how much they will put that against you or use it against you. The information and just the minute things that you don't think are important that they can use against you, whether you're in the streets, whether you're working in the jail, the prison, there's things that they can use against you. And you always have to be, I don't want to use the word hypervigilant, but almost so vigilant all the time to make sure you're not giving any way any of your tells because they'll pick up on it like that. Correct. 
So when we talk about undercover schools, Joe, you had mentioned uh, that you taught mm -hmm. undercover schools. That's actually how you two met. Now, when you two met, it doesn't seem like it would blossom into the beautiful relationship that you two have now of how you met each other. So if you can tell that story, I thought it was a great one. Well, I was teaching an undercover class to, uh, uh, I guess it was U.S. Customs. And uh, <clears throat> Bob was in, was one of the, uh, the special agents in the class. He was actually a student. And uh, at a break, he come up to me and he said, uh, you're not as big as you look in your book, in your book, in the book. And so I looked at him and, of course, you know, I'm I'm six foot, 180 pounds at the time, and he's six five, about 270. And I looked up to him and I just said, "Well, left you too, you know." <laughs> and and uh, so then, you know, after you start talking, we found out that uh, he found out that I was a basketball player. He was a basketball player, and it just went out from there. Well, I'll correct that. I was about 260, number one. <laughs> Funny story. So we're at the break. I get introduced to him. You know, hey, I'm Bob Stoddard. And then I said, wow, you look a lot bigger in the book. And he says, glad to effing meet you, too. What happened was I had a sinus infection. And on my desk, I had like a you know a bottle of Tylenol, some nose spray, and some uh, antibiotics. And he wasn't feeling good. He said, hey, what do you got over there? So I told him. He said, I'm not feeling too good. I said, well, you know. Would you like some of these? He said, yeah. So I went out and I refilled the prescription. So he said to me, why did you come to this undercover school? If I'm correct, it was a two-week school that you had to be certified. I said, the only reason I came was because all the other classes were done at the um, IBM, I guess, uh, Spring, yeah, Virginia. In, in Virginia. And I said, I heard you gave out an autograph book. So my, I was being a wise ass. I'm like, that's the only reason I came. I wanted an autograph book. But I got to tell you what a stand-up guy he is. In my book, I slipped. I said at halftime because I was thinking basketball. <laughs> During the lunch break, he comes back and he gave me an autograph book. And that's, we kind of, then we just started meeting for, you know, Jewish bagels once in a while. And, you know, we'd go out to eat and uh, we just, our friends just. And I had to go to Barnes and Noble and buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Don't worry. I've, I've repaid him several times. Trust oh, me. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. With bagels. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let, let's uh, let's talk about bagels for a minute because it's funny that you bring those up. Now, everyone says that no one can beat a New York bagel, whether it's the water, whatever it is that they use. You guys are in a new location, not New York. Now, I don't want to give out where you guys are, but is that true? Do the bagels compare to where you are now than they did in New York? Is there any way to compete with it? Well, I'll do the Jewish version first. Okay. So <laughs> I used to work in a bagel store and actually okay. I used when we had to give a scenario how we're going to smuggle dope I actually used the scenario of making night deliveries with the bagel truck you know with the garlic and the onions and keeping the dope in there so if we were stopped which we wouldn't have been you know the smell from the odor would you know knock it away but anyhow uh, a place that I worked for in New York had a bagel store down here and they said the biggest problem they were having was something with the water the way it affects the dough from rising, yeast, yeast. right? The yeast. So what happens is you know, you come to Florida when I'm living in Florida and all you see everywhere is New York pizza, New York pizza, New York pizza. My kids thought that Domino's is real pizza. So that's how much they know. 
But there are a few places that, like down here, I found a couple like Brooklyn bagels are pretty good. There's Manhattan bagels, but never the same as getting a New York bagel, New York pizza, or even New York Chinese food. Now I come from I come from uh, New York to visit Bob, and he said I'm going to take you to a oh, a good Italian place, <laughs> Calamad. I said okay. <laughs> I'm not going to name the restaurant, but <laughs> we go to this restaurant and he ordered, you know, and he's all bragging about this calamad and uh, which is squid for non-Italians. Okay. I was just about to say, can you tell everyone what that is? Cause I had no idea. And I take one bite and I spit it out. I said, this number one, this, this shit is frozen. It's frozen <laughs> and it's microwave. Yes. Yeah, like <laughs> That was the last time I ever took Joe out for Italian food until years later when he gives me all his recipes from his mob recipe book. But so I, I, I can only imagine, Joe, with you working undercover, especially who you were working undercover with, the, the meals that you ate, the food that was presented to you. I mean, that's always a big thing. And we'll just use as a cliche gangster movies. Uh, they always talk about the food and, and presentation and, and the gravy and all those kind of things. Talk to me about just hanging out with these guys, whether it be, uh, you know, in a restaurant, in their homes, what was a mealtime like? Well, it, it, you know, uh, I used to eat a lot at the <clears throat> Lefty Ruggiero's house. <laughs> he actually was a, was a very good cook. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's soup to nuts, you know? And then the, the best part is if you go to a restaurant with them, I mean, you know, the, the owner, the chef, everybody knows who they are. So, you know, you don't order off the menu, you order what you want and right. they prepare it. Uh, and then there's never any bill. <laughs> It's, it's, you know, you just leave a tip. So they, they live pretty good when it comes to food. Did you have a favorite dish since you don't order off the menu like the normal people? Uh, did you have a favorite dish or a favorite restaurant? Well, you know, they, they were all good Italian restaurants. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a pasta guy, so I like, I like pasta and, and meatballs. So, you know, uh, whatever the pasta was in a day or whatever. A funny story, you mentioned that. <clears throat> um, uh, a few years ago, I'm with a friend of mine who's a retired New York City detective, and we're up at uh, Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. And Arthur Avenue is uh, where all the Italian stores are, good Italian stores and good Italian restaurants. <clears throat> and we're sitting at the bar, uh waiting for our meal and everything. And there's, and it, 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 the place is frequented by wise guys. I mean, you know, it's known as a, uh, because of the food's good. Uh, <clears throat> and there's two guys sit, sitting next to us and we, you know, you can overhear the conversation <laughs> and they're talking about Donnie Brasco. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the guy says, yeah, that effing rat, Donnie Brasco, blah, 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 blah. You know, so I look at my friend and he looks at me and we just, you know, we just shrug our shoulders and continue <laughs> eating. <laughs> now, the guy doesn't know he's sitting next to me. 
Well, that's the that's the thing that's always uh, confused me because they call you a rat. To me, a rat is very different. You were a police officer working a role. You weren't just a guy that was trying to move up in the ranks. Of course, you were trying to move up for your case and everything. But I've never understood that why they labeled that title onto you. Well, from what I, uh, you know, I, I think because uh, I really, in their mind, I became one of them because I broke bread with them. I, you know, I spent time at their at their their houses. Uh, I went to weddings. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I got to know their their wives, their kids. Uh, so that during the, the the six years, they, you know, they they really thought I was one of them. In fact, I was at one of the trials, and I get off the witness stand, <clears throat> and I'm walking by the defense uh, table, and one of the one of the defendants was actually. Uh, uh, a high-ranking member. He, he was a capo uh, in in the in the Bonanno family. And uh, as I'm walking by him, he says he calls me Donnie. Now this is like maybe two years after the operation's over. And I've been testifying in all these trials. He says, "Donnie, how could you do that? You're one of us." <laughs> so, was there ever? Uh a conflict in your head. I mean, this was not a normal, like we talked about in the very beginning where you have an undercover detective, maybe buying five nickel bags or whatever it may be. That's a very short term investigation. Your investigation started to be only six months, but it took you six months to actually even start getting introduced to people. It ended up being six years. Is there ever conflict in your mind or is there ever sorrow? I don't want to say regret or anything like that. When you see the dominoes actually start falling, do you ever look back and go, I really like that guy as a person. I had to take him down. Is there ever a, a conflict in your head about that kind of stuff? No, I mean, I, you know, I didn't want to see guys get whacked, get killed over me, which several of them did. Uh, but that's not my problem. I mean, they entered a life knowing what the life is. Absolutely. Uh, they made a choice, you know, to enter that life. They made a choice to be gangsters. I didn't, I didn't turn them into gangsters. They were gangsters before they met me. They were gangsters during the time they met me. And they were gangsters after they met me. Uh, so as far as sending anybody to jail, I, I had no regrets on that. Uh, Again, you know, I, I, I didn't want to see anybody get killed, Absolutely. but hey, that's, that's the life, you know, that's the life that they chose. And they know that, uh, there are certain, uh, rules in that life that'll get you killed. And, uh, that, that's one of them, you know, you don't, uh, you don't get involved with the police. You don't talk to the, you know, you don't be an informer, uh, and you, you don't vouch for, uh, for somebody. Uh, who, who turns out to be bad. So, but uh, no, I had, you know, I, I sleep pretty good at night. Bob, same kind of question to you, a little different, uh, not necessarily working undercover and being in relationships, but building all the stuff that you built, you had to have longtime informants. Was there ever, um, was there ever time where with an informant, uh, 
you didn't feel sorry for them, but you felt bad because maybe they were a good guy giving you good information. They were just kind of a piece of shit in general. Uh, was there ever anything like that? Well, you know, I, I think the general public has a misconception on informants. You know, to me, there's certain types of informants. You have the ones that are just flat out bad guys. You know, maybe they got locked up and they're trying to work a deal. You got another one that's going to probably give up his competitor, especially at the level we were dealing with money laundering and the drugs. Here. Absolutely. You got the third one, which is more you have like some professional people who are really good. They know a lot of information. It's kind of like, you know, it's like they're, they're cop buffs, you know. And I was very fortunate. I had two very good sources that one was in actually in Colombia moving money. And the other one was working here doing the pickups. And both of them were, you know, they, they were, when I say decent people, they weren't bad people. They were family people, you know, that, and my biggest success came from these two, especially, you know, in the money laundering and the drug field. I've had other ones that were just dirtbags that, you know, were trying to work something off. Right. And, you know, a lot, you know, the, the good thing was the government paid very well. So the ones that were working, they're kind of like mercenaries, you know, and they weren't doing anything wrong. I was very fortunate. Um, you know, I was able to protect them for numerous years. There were some that we weren't able to protect. And again, I, I think it's like what Joe said, you know, like when you're bad, you, you, uh, you choose that life. Now, you know, are you going to be the one that, you know, I had a uh, guy that worked for me actually just passed away recently. He was like a cop buff. And at one point they wanted to make him an agent. He was perfect, spoke three different languages. He just loved what he did. And he probably made more money working as, uh, as he would say, a contractor for the U.S. government than actually being an agent. <laughs> you know? So it varies. But, you know, I, I don't feel bad for people that do wrong, especially, like I said, I worked in jail. And we, they used to say, you know, if their lips are moving, they're lying. So when, you know, they chose that. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, working as a team and working in solitude. This is where you two kind of differ very much in careers. Bob, you were very um, focused on teamwork and you made a point of it in your book a lot where you talk about just because you guys were fed, you couldn't work with local agents. A lot of guys didn't like working with local agencies and different things like that. You always made sure that you included everyone in because you felt that the rewards could be way bigger by including everyone in Joe on the flip of that coin though, you're pretty much in solitude for six years. Uh, you have a team, but are they really around? Are they close cover? No, not for what you were doing. So can we talk about the differences starting with Bob with working as a team and then Joe working solitude doing the same kind of job? Well, when I uh, got assigned to Operation Greenback and even previous, previously to that working in the FIST team, which was Freighter Intelligence Surveillance Team, you know, I relate it to basketball. You're only as good as the people around you. You know, whether it's basketball, you need five guys, you know, all, like I say, one fist. <laughs> so what I did was I was able to, uh, when I was in Operation Greenback, I was able to get the uh, Broward Sheriff's Office to work with us. And I worked very closely with a Bert Fashad. I mean, he did a lot of undercover work for us. I got the Metro Day Police, which had Tommy O'Keefe. That was a great cop. Got them involved. So we had Day County, Broward County. We already had had uh, U.S. Border Patrol there because, to me, they were the real police of the Immigration Service back then, Steve Peluso. And then we had Coral Gables with Wayne, Wayne Harris, excuse me, and his troops. 
I worked for a great boss, Wayne Roberts, a uh, Marine vet. Uh, he was just unbelievable. And what we learned from him, you know, we were able to just put it all together, working together, you know, it was different. We're surveilling, we're, you know, making money pickups, we're surveilling large loads of dope, we're bringing it in, you know, all legally, of course. And and the team effort to me was so important. And, and again, it helped me in both careers, you know, basketball coaching and definitely working. And, you know, I, I always attribute things. It, it's not me, 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 me. You know, a lot of the guys have a big ego. Everything was me was we. It was always all of us. And that's the way I always felt. I think that's what led to the success. And I think also when you have good supervisors, you know, I, I was fortunate. I had like really three or four great supervisors. Like I mentioned Wayne Roberts at Woody Kirk, Toby Roach. And I had a guy that I worked with as an agent that became a supervisor, Lorenzo Toledo. And when you work with guys that are on the same page with you and they enjoy what they're doing and they do it the right way, your job is easier. And again, you know, my situation was much different than Joe's. Joe? Well, yeah, I'd like to work alone in, in, in undercover cases because you, you only worry about yourself. And in undercover, there's only one person that's going to save your life, and that's, that's you. Uh, you know, everybody else comes in later. You know, I mean, if, if you're in a room, uh, and you got the HRT or SWAT team in the next room, by the time you're dead or shot, that's when they come through the door. So what I, <clears throat> but I've worked with great undercovers and on, uh, like on my case, I, I, uh, introduced undercovers to mob guys. <clears throat> they had undercover cases already going, uh, and they wanted to, you know, juice them up. So I brought him. I brought in my mob guys, uh, and then, you know, I told the undercover, look, once you, once I make the introduction, uh, you get accepted by the guys, uh, then it's your case, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm here to help you, but, uh, uh, it, it, it's your case. Uh, so, but, you know, you do have other individuals involved in, 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 in on the team. You have the, you know, the people back uh, in the office that know the case, you know, and undercover cases are really kept in a tight knit group. But you need, in, you know, you need people to, to uh, transcribe uh, any recordings uh, uh, if you have evidence to, you know, to, to uh, mark the evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And you need individuals that you can trust. Uh, so it, it, even though it's, it, it's an undercover case where the undercover is, is you're out there by yourself, you still have a team that's, you know, that's back in the office supporting you, which is very important. And talking about that and being by yourself, uh, you don't have a lot of people that understand that position unless they've been in that position. Uh, so you have maybe a lot of people in charge that are trying to tell you how to do your job. Um, I, I had read that for like the first, I don't know, six months or a year, you never wore or, or very rarely wore a wire or anything like that because you were with these guys day and night. Um, I want to talk about people being in charge of you, trying to tell you how to do the job. Did you run into that trouble? Because I think that that still might be a little bit of trouble today. People that aren't doing the job, trying to tell other people how to do the job. Yeah, that, that that's a that's a problem in, in undercover work, and it's it's 
usually the the the, uh, the individuals that that are associated with the case back in the office or back at headquarters uh, that haven't worked undercover, and you know trying to trying to get across to you about how to steer a conversation or what what more you what you need. I mean, what I used to get a lot was uh, uh, I'd have a conversation and uh, and I, I didn't do many recordings. My conversations with bad guys were, uh, were regurgitated to uh, uh, my contact agent and then he, he would reduce it to paper and then, uh, you know, somebody at headquarters would read the conversation and then, you know, and they want to read it till three weeks, a month later, and then they want you to go back and revisit that conversation. And I said, you know, there's no way you can, you know, you can't do that. You know, I can't go revisit a conversation that I had a month ago that has, that's passed and gone and has nothing to do with the present day, what I'm doing present day. So you get that, you know, you get that a lot. Uh, today, you know, I was lucky, you know, during, during my day that, uh, uh, I had real street agents running, you know, undercover operations. And what I mean by that are agents that, that had, were, were around, they were street guys. Uh, now they may be supervisors, but you know, they were still great street agents, uh, Today, unfortunately, from what I understand, you know, you might have somebody that that uh, never worked undercover, uh, running running cases, uh, and there's there's too much of a a tight rein on the undercovers. Uh, so I don't know that that in today's world that I that I would even venture to go into undercover. To be honest with you, with all the restrictions and and uh range that they have on the undercover agent uh uh so but yeah uh it's tougher today and, and another reason why it's tougher today work undercover is because of the uh social media internet you know building a background for for the uh, agent uh for the undercover uh i mean that's the that's the biggest part of undercover you know having a good, uh, having a good background, uh, who you were, where you came from. And today it's kind of tough with the, uh, with social media. Yeah. You, you almost have to build two stories. Uh, you know, one that you remember in your head and one that very closely relates it in social media, which sometimes is two very hard worlds to collide together. Now you were telling me, Joe, that you actually got a supervisor when we're talking about people trying to tell you how to do your job to buy you a suit on one of your operations. <laughs> he was trying to tell you what to do. You told him, I don't want to dress like that unless you're going to buy me a suit. So he bought you a suit. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I was doing an undercover case overseas. Uh, and I knew, you know, I had worked with the, uh, with the undercover squad before I had never worked with this one supervisor. He wasn't in the undercover, uh, division of this, uh, of this uh, particular police department, but he was a supervisor on, on a case. <clears throat> and uh, they brought me over to be their mafia contact uh, in the U.S. that uh, uh, was going to provide the money for the commodities. And when I first met the individual, uh, 
you know, he seemed like a nice enough guy. He's telling me about the case and everything. <clears throat> and uh, he said, what are you going to wear to the meeting? I said, well, I got slacks. I got, a, you know, I got nice slacks. I got, I got a shirt. I got a tie and I got a sport coat. He said, oh, no, you got to wear a suit because these guys wear suits. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not these guys, you know. I mean, I'm not, I, 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 I'm a New York, you know, a New York wise guy. I wear what I want to wear. Well, no, no, no. They, 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 this this particular uh, group of uh, gangsters, they always wear suits. I said, I don't have a suit. I said, you want to buy me one? <laughs> so he turns around, he goes in into a into a safe and pulls out money and gives it to my counterpart who and says, here, go buy him a suit. I said, what am I going to do with the suit when I'm done? He says, keep it. It's yours. <laughs> I said, all right. So we go to the store. I buy two suits. I give one to my partner. <laughs> it's great so, when you're spending money that's not yours. Yeah, well, you know, if he wanted to buy me a suit, what the hell am I going to say, you know? Uh, and uh, so then he starts telling me about how, how I should talk to this individual. You know, you, you have to defer to him. You can't insult them. You can't. And I say, look, I don't tell you how to run your, 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 your crime squad here. Don't tell me how to conduct conversations and then undercover me. I said, you know, it doesn't work that way. So we go to the meet and it's set up in a big suite and the suite next door, uh, the undercover team is in there uh, recording it, both audio and visual recording it. And you know. so as we we're going on with the conversation, this guy keeps interrupting me. So finally I just says, Hey, let me ask you a question. Why the F do your sentences, always start in the middle of mine. <laughs> and it took him back a bit. He looks at me and now he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Joe. Because uh, I was going by the name of, of Joe Marino at the time. He said, I'm sorry, Mr. Joe. Uh, no disrespect. And it changed the whole course of the conversation. Now he's regurgitating everything that we wanted to get out of him. After the meeting, though, my my counterpart that was you know with the uh, with that 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 uh, undercover unit who was in the next room, he says, "I thought the supervisor was going to have a heart attack when you said that." <clears throat> but you know, everything worked out good. I mean, we got more than than what they originally thought they were going to get anyway. Bob asking you in your book, you talk about a lot of very good leaders that you had throughout your career, but you talk about a couple of bad ones and ones that, uh, kind of held a grudge against you, uh, and moved you around to places that they probably shouldn't have moved you around to. Can, can we talk about that, that story and kind of the background of it and how you kind of got on these guys radar in the first place? Well, I, I never really understood. I know one guy, uh, was, trying to do a friend of mine. He was an internal affairs agent and I got called into the grand jury and, you know, they threatened me. We're going to check child, you know, charge you with 18 USC 1001 false statements. And I had an attorney there from FLIOA, which is the <clears throat> federal law enforcement office association. And she turned around and said, my client's going to ruin your case. 
And I went in there and I told the truth, everything. And of course, the case was over with. So I believe he held a grudge because he was a very vindictive guy. And then a couple years later, his buddy is our, uh, what they call a rack, the resident agent in charge. And I'm assigned to the office there. Uh, I got put into a drug group, which I had about 20 years experience with all young guys. And, you know, I was kind of, I, by the way, I'm working for him, for the guy that went after my friend. And, uh, you know, I was kind of treated like a little kid. And I went into the boss, not realizing that both of them are best friends. And I was very nice about it. Believe it or not, I, I never opened my mouth in the wrong way, at least not in the office. And uh, I told him I'm very uncomfortable working for this individual and, you know, whatever. And he says, don't worry, he's one of us. That's all I had to hear. So, you know, move forward, a couple more cases. You know, he has me four miles away on a surveillance, which is fine. I can't get in trouble that way, but it's very frustrating. So finally, I went in to speak with him. And he's about four foot five, and I'm about six foot five. So I made sure I was staring down on him. And I explained to him that, that, you know, that there was another case he had on me also. So I made a BS allegation, which took seven years. And I knew I did nothing wrong. But, you know, when they read you your Miranda warnings, you kind of get a little nervous. I don't care who you are. It's a ploy they use. Make a long story short, I basically said to him, listen, I understand you had a case. That case could have been closed in seven minutes, not in seven years. And, you know, all you had to do was call up internal affairs. I mean, excuse me, call up our communications. Everything is documented and taped. You listen to the call. I called it in. Basically, I called in a seizure. Somebody said I got paid. I paid an informant for something that didn't happen. Lo and behold, a week later, this is when we had the merger. You know, we became ICE when customs merged with uh, immigration. And I'm shipped to 79th Street which is like, you know, that's like the punishment place. I was very fortunate sometimes when they think they're punishing you, they're really not. And I worked for a Toby Roach who treated me, you know, just like anybody else, just a great guy. And then moving forward, the guy that was the rack became our special agent in charge. Then he transfers me to the airport. Now the airport is for new agents. And usually when they make a transfer, they come out with a, you know, a little BS, I call it. So his was based on my experience working in an airport as a senior agent. You know, basically, I'm going to teach all the young guys. Well, I really never worked in an airport, only when I first started in customs until they shipped me to the academy in New York. So I had a decent boss then. He put me in for like a cash award, basically using the same verbiage that the special agent in charge, you know, that messed with me saying, based on my experience, this and that, I actually got like a $500 award in I think two free days. <laughs> and just to make a long story short, I always believe that karma is going to come back and haunt somebody. Well, the one special agent in charge went to prison for child pornography. Ooh. And the other one, and I don't wish this on nobody, but he got killed in a motorcycle accident. And I, I don't wish death on nobody. I don't wish harm on nobody. But it's just, you know, I, I always, like I said, my whole life, even coaching, being a person that I am, you know, working, I always try to help somebody. I always try to do the right thing. You know, I, I don't wish harm on nobody. You know, I'm not a vindictive person, although some people probably think I am. But, you know, I, I and, and it's just amazing. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I was forced to, I just had to put my retirement paper in due to an incident that happened at the airport on my choice, not nobody else's. Right. And, and I want to get to that in a minute. The, the last thing I want to talk about, about your careers and, and timeframes is 
Bob, you couldn't have worked at a better time in Miami. Cocaine Cowboys, Miami Vice is huge on TV. Your guys in your office, and you especially even knew some of the Miami Vice people. Like, it was the heyday of cocaine trafficking. Joe, you were kind of in the heyday of uh, mafia in New York. I mean, they still talk about the guys that were around to this day um, more than I would say a lot of what went on. What was it like? And I just want like memories and feelings of what was it like to work in those two eras? Because I don't think you could pick a better one for a story or for a book. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, those years were the heyday of, of the American mafia. Uh, they controlled everything in the U.S. They controlled uh, every movement of every commodity you can think of. Uh, they controlled the uh, – uh, you know, it's hard to explain, but – they they were the they were the the organization that controlled everything. Uh, there was there wasn't anything in the U.S. that moved that the mafia didn't have their stamp on it and didn't get a kickback from it, no matter what it was, no matter what it was. Uh, and that's not so much today. I mean, you know, they had they had ins into the government, they had ins into law enforcement. They had ins into the judicial system. Uh, they had ins into politicians. Uh, there wasn't anywhere that they couldn't reach and get something done. Um, that all ended, you know, going into the uh, into the mid '80s uh, when you know, and I I don't say, but. Uh, from from our from our case, that was the initial case that to me was a downfall of the mafia, uh, because now we uh, <clears throat> we start charging them with the RICO statute. Uh, we uh, when I say we, I'm talking about you know about the FBI and and other government agencies. Uh, we convict uh, the bosses. In the famous commission cases, commission case where we charged that uh, all the mafia bosses uh, brought down the Pizza Connection case, the biggest uh, uh, drug case in the history of the country, uh, finally formed uh, a great alliance with the Italians to fight the, the mafia. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was the era. And then once those cases start start falling and we start you know getting convictions you know now the mafia when i say the Ameri i'm talking about the american mafia now you know it's just another organized crime group are they still involved in in, in things yeah but they don't control the country like they did uh during those those years bob same to you well first of all joe does not like to brag. He's not like that. But to me, he's the Babe Ruth of law enforcement. You know, he doesn't like to say that, but his case is the one that really broke up the mafia back then and, and changed it for good. Uh, the other thing I forgot on behalf of Joe and myself, we want to thank Ralph Friedman. We forgot to mention that uh, for getting us on the show with you. So Absolutely. Because I don't want to hear no crap from him when I speak to him later. <laughs> so that's that. 
when I came down, it, I transferred here in 1985. We were on an undercover operation up in New York. It wasn't what I thought it would be. And uh, I tell her I had a very good friend I met uh, in the academy, Bobby Benevente. He was a New Yorker working in Miami. He said, if you guys ever want to come to Florida, let me know. Well, I came down on the weekend with myself and Nick Jacobellis, and we were just watching the guys working, and it just, the whole environment was so different. You know, it was something I really wanted to do. Uh, you know, we joke, my wife will always say, yeah, I watch Miami Vice, so I wanted to come here. But yeah, watching it kind of encouraged, you know, it's like seeing the way it was. Uh, I decided to transfer here, and we were offered a deal. It was like getting a basketball scholarship. They paid our house hunting trip, they paid our, uh, our first 60 days, temporary quarters, closing fees on the house. The only problem was I never told my wife that I accepted a transfer. <laughs> so she, hopefully she forgives me by now because things have worked out. You know, she was pregnant with our first child. So, you know, I came down here and it was just like heaven, you know. And uh, I remember my first day, it was like 85, no, about 105 degrees. We checked in, went to the hotel went to the patrol office. I was a customs patrol officer at the time. Uh, Jim Larison and Val Jorge gives us a key to a car. They said, go to the range, qualify. I'll see you in a week. Learn Miami. I'm like, wow. You know, like, and they had the trust in you, which was great. You know, you don't see that. Can you imagine doing oh, that now? Absolutely Guys, not. Yeah, right. Anyhow, I go to the range. I qualify. I shoot a machine gun. I never shot in my life. And I think that was the last time I shot it. It was August 25th, 1985. And I said, I'm going to a Cuban coffee shop. I used to watch Lieutenant Castillo on Miami Vice, <laughs> sip the coffee, you know, with that big Gatorade <laughs> on the side with water. So here I am. I sip it for the next 10 days. I had the worst case of the runs. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was like 105 degrees. I'm shooting down this. So I learned how to drink coffee. But, you know, working, you know, like I said, I started working for Wayne Roberts. And I, I you know, if I put him up against any boss in the country. After him, I worked for Woody Kirk, and like I mentioned, a few other names, Toby Roach. But we learned so much, and there was so much to do here. Like I used to laugh, and you know, guys will still deny this, but if you couldn't make a case in Miami, you could walk over something. You know, and there was people that didn't. You know, but again, we like to do it the team effort. Let's just say, was well, when I first started, I didn't have any informants. You developed them. And, you know, you just work and you work and you work and it, it became fun. You know, to me, it was like sports. You know, you go up, go out, you lock a few guys up, you know, you make a nice seizure. It's like winning a basketball game, not getting hurt. You know, I didn't cheat in basketball. I didn't lie in court, you know, and that's how I, I just had it that way up until my last night when I decided it was over. Don't you agree, though, just kind of as a side question that you, you say you didn't lie in court, which is a given. But don't you feel that back in those days in court, they believed a police officer today. They believe the criminal over a police officer any day or you have to go to extreme measures to prove that you're telling the truth. Yeah, it's like you're guilty to prove it innocent. But that's the same thing on social media. You know, you could write. I see guys writing. I was an undercover narcotics guy. I was all city basketball. They couldn't even play in the Jewish Center League. And some of these guys weren't cops long enough to even be a detective, you know. But it just, I don't know. It's, it's like, you know, I, I saw the, uh, I saw something that had a picture of, what do you call him, a meme? A picture of Mike Tyson. And it said, everybody's a tough guy till you punch him in the face. 
you know, and it's like, I, I don't know, it, it's sad that that's the way the, the world has revolved, you know, like it's, it's changed with like, you're right, the bad guy is always innocent. And the cop is innocent until proven guilty. So it's like, and that that's the trend, you know, listen, I, I had a guy in court, tell me, you know, you know, you know, you state your name, state your title, stand up. So I stand up. He goes, how tall are you? I'm six, five. And this was before I met Joe. I was about 270. And uh, I get up. I weigh 270. And he says to me, isn't it true you beat a confession out of my client? In my mind, I'm laughing. I said, if I, in my mind, I said, if I did, he wouldn't be standing here. But what they try to do, they, and this is back then, you know, they try to get you aggravated. And, you know, and, and again, I was taught by a very good boss. You know, he taught me how to testify. And then the experience of testifying so much. But now it's like they'll just attack you, attack you. attack. Hey, isn't it, you know, in 1965, you know, you, you called somebody this. You know, you were in second grade or something. You know, and it's like, it's horrible. It's just, it's like, I don't know how anyone could be a cop now. Or any type of position. It. It's great that you bring that up because I want to talk about the end of your careers. They, they, end of your undercover operation, Joe, not the end of your career, but I want to talk, tie it into kind of Bob's end of his career. Now, neither one of you have ever strayed away from a fight, never been able to go into the fray. Uh, and both of you were a very hands on officer, detective, special agent. Uh, and, the, the story that ended yours, Bob, was um, when you were working, as you said, this last job where they had brought in a brand new guy, uh, you didn't feel that it was safe to do the things, and, and I'm very much paraphrasing the story because I want you to tell it, but it is the thing that made you decide, I have to step away from this. And then in kind of contrast, Joe, we're going to talk about what was asked of you and why the operation was kind of ended. So Bob, if you'll start. Well, I remember it was uh, when I was assigned to the airport, uh, the inspectors had made a seizure of two kilos of heroin. Now, usually they turn it over to the agents to do what they call a control delivery. You know, you try to deliver it to the recipient, providing the courier cooperates. This one was cooperating. But time is of the essence when you're doing a control delivery because they'll have spotters inside the airport, you know, waiting for the person to come out. They'll, they'll do just so many things, you know. They'll even have a guy sitting there with a pair of red socks, with a pair of green socks. And they'll, like, let's say they're going to walk over to an inspector. If it's coming through a suitcase, he'll cross his leg red, like, don't go there. Like, they're watching, like we spoke about earlier, watch every move. Anyhow, we go ahead and we're going to deliver the cocaine, uh, the heroin, excuse me. There was really no briefing. Usually you have a briefing take down, you know, uh, even the local hospital. It was very minimal what they did. They put a new agent to be the lead agent on the uh, case. We were meeting outside of a Denny's outside on 36th Street, right outside the airport. And it was late at night. It was after 12. And uh, at the time, I was still driving the Grand Marquis, which does not fit in in a drug surveillance. I, I worked at the FBI for five years, so they gave me like Kojak's car, so it was yeah. pretty good. So I'm with a former immigration agent. And I said, we're going to park next door in the McDonald's because we can't, our car will be spotted in a second. So, you know, you don't hear nothing. There wasn't really, we didn't know who was out there with us for the most part. And it was basically, it wasn't good. And I had a bad feeling. All of a sudden we hear, we see a car come into the parking lot. Now McDonald's is closed at this time and his lights are off. So I said to the guy I'm with, I said, that's the bad guy. He says, how do you know? I said, I'm telling you, that's him. He said, why do you say that? 
I said, well, I know a lot of bad guys. What they'll do is they'll drive through a lot with their lights off. And if a cop is in there, they'll flash him or they'll tell him to put his lights on. And then they know, you know, that, that was my feeling. Sure enough, two seconds later, pulls in front of the, uh, the, the Denny's. And remind you, the access is less than a quarter of a mile to get onto the highway and you're free. So all of a sudden I hear, okay, uh, the guy's here. Well, he's leaving. He got in the car. So first of all, he's getting in the car with the two kilos. They didn't even break it down. You're supposed to break it down with sham. You know, you leave enough in there for evidence. And what do I do? I pull around. I box the guy in. You know, your adrenaline's flowing. It probably seemed like, you know, four hours and it probably was 30 seconds. I tell the guy I'm with, you get the passenger, I'm getting the driver. As I get out, now I have a ray jacket on, I have a vest on, I have my gun out. The guy's revving his engine. So my mind is thinking really quick. All of a sudden I look up, I see a DE agent who was not at our little briefing pointing a machine gun at me. Other guys are surrounding with guns. I'm like, I just grabbed the guy and I pulled him right through the window, put him on the ground. And in a nice way, I said, uh, do not move. I'm too old for this and I'm not going to die. And everything was arrested. We took care of it. And, you know, the boss comes up and he goes, oh, you sure showed those old guys what to do. The new guys, excuse me. I looked at them. That night, I drove home. Normally, it's a 35-minute ride home. It seemed like seven hours. And I put my retirement papers in for the following January. <laughs> I just, I'm not going to die. I had enough time to leave. I had, oh, I had 25 years in already. So let me ask you, because you kind of said the answer there. What was it specifically about this incident? Because you had had many other scrapes, and you talk about them through the book and things that would pop up, Murphy's Law kind of things. What was it about this incident that stood out so much in your brain? Well, you know, working, like I said, I mentioned Wayne's name a lot and the, the Metro Day guys, and I, I worked with so many great guys that never would have happened that way. You know, I mean, tactically, we would have been – ready, everything, we would have had everything, you know, in place. Now, not that anything could go wrong, but never like, you know, the, the word wing it, the word wing it gets people killed. And I just felt, you know, we were in some hairy situations before, but I knew who I was with. You know, I knew the guys I was with. We had a good team. <clears throat> this was scary. And it was just like, it was over. I just said, this is wrong. I'm not going to get hurt. You know, I didn't want to read in the paper the next day, have my, you know, agent. Well, I wouldn't write it if I got killed, but <laughs> you know, hey, you, you could have had Joe write it. He wrote the forward for the book. You could have had Joe write it. That's really nice. You know? But I just said, you know what? And my wife didn't understand it, but I right. think as time went on and she speaks to people and our son-in-law is a cop right now and, you know, hearing the stories and actually one of my closest friend and Joseph and my friend Miles son, he's still working. And it's like the stuff that goes on. I, I don't know. I God bless anybody in law enforcement now. I don't know how they do it. Do you think that not that night or that operation, but do you think that era was the start of a trend? Oh yeah. You know, the uh everything was starting to trickle downhill, I believe. You know, okay. all the good people were gone. You know, you, you again I, I you know I, I was a college basketball coach. Don't ask me to coach a, so a college soccer team. You know, I mean, don't put somebody where they shouldn't be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I blame that again. That starts up top. You know, you're only as good as your team. You know, the, the pen stops after a while. And that, that was the biggest problem. Joe, to you, uh, 
there's a story that that Lefty had talked to you and talked to you about. Uh, had you ever killed anyone? You had told him that you had killed a couple guys in an argument. He asked about a contract. Now, once again, I'm paraphrasing for you because I want you to tell the story. But ending up getting a contract is what ultimately, from what I understand, ended the operation. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because it wasn't the end of your career, but it was definitely the end of this six years of your life. Yeah, well, <clears throat> what happened was there was a... Uh, there was a war going on within the Bonanno family for control of the family. Uh, the boss was in jail, actually. Uh, <clears throat> and there was a, a, a fraction of the family that wasn't aligned with, with the boss of the family. Uh, I was with the faction that was aligned with the boss of the family. So uh, <clears throat> at some point in time, the faction that I was aligned with uh, set up a meeting with the three individuals that uh, who were captains, uh, that means that they headed up a crew in the family, uh, set up a meeting with them, and when they got to the meeting, they they killed them. Uh, if you saw the movie that the uh, one individual, there were supposed to be four individuals attend the uh, the meeting, only three came, so they killed those three, and then <clears throat> I was given a contract to kill the guy that uh, that didn't show up. So basically now there's a shooting war going on within the family. Uh, every, you know, every place we go, we're, we're, uh, we're carrying. Uh, so that, that basically was the reason uh, that the operation was, uh, was ended because of the shooting war within the family. Uh, the problem for me was I was supposed to get inducted into the Bonanno family in December. I had already uh, been uh, uh, proposed for membership, had passed all the uh, requirements for uh, for membership, uh, but they pulled the plug July 27th of that year. So uh, I didn't get my, you know, I didn't get uh, the shot to get uh, uh, made into the Bonanno family. Uh, but that's basically what ended the operation was with the shooting war within the family and be getting contracts to kill uh, individuals within the family. Is it true that, that for you, I, I know you had said that in December that was supposed to take place, but was, is, is it true that c fulfilling a contract was kind of the final check mark for you to get in? Or did you not have to do a contract? Was that ever going to come in conflict? Because that's what I've read that, that was kind of the conflict that you had to complete the contract in order to become the family. Well, yeah, you're supposed to, but you know, like everything else, everybody lies for everybody, <laughs> you know, and my capo was Sonny Black, not Latano, who was very powerful uh, capo within the family. In fact, he was one of the street bosses running the faction of the family while the boss was in jail. Uh, <clears throat> So, I mean, I was never going to actually kill that guy. I mean, uh, of course, I, I couldn't do that. But, you know, we had a scenario where if the, if the FBI found them, they would set up a hit and make it look like a hit. Uh, and uh, but that wasn't one of the requirements. I had already been proposed and passed it past that uh, that situation where I had gotten the thumbs up from every captain in the family uh, to become a member. So uh, whether I had killed the guy prior to December didn't make any difference. Uh, 
But since, you know, since there was a, a shooting war going on, you know, that's one of the reasons why the, uh, why they pulled the plug on the operation. I want to read a quote from you after all this ended. Uh, you said, as I looked, as I look at the ravaged state of New York's five families and its mafia commission today, I feel more than satisfied that my unfinished business is finally finished. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And then Bob, I want to talk about your career and how you felt if you were satisfied with what you had done, if there was more that you wanted to do. But let's start with you, Joe, talking about that. You're saying my unfinished business is done now. Talk yeah. about your career. Well, you know, I mean, we set out what we accomplished to do. We brought the, you know, we brought the New York Mafia basically, you know, knocked it, knocked it off its pedestal. Uh, we, we, we put away, you know, over 200 and some individuals that, that, that convicted, uh, in the 17, 17 or so trials, uh, all upper echelon of the mafia, uh, not just underlings, but, you know, bosses of, of families. So yeah, what we started out to do, uh, even though it wasn't, you know, the initial, the initial, uh, thought that we had in mind, uh, we brought it down. I mean, like I say, today, the American Mafia is just another criminal organization. Uh, it doesn't control interstate commerce and, and all the other uh, aspects of, of American life that it controlled. It's just another criminal organization within the U.S. And not the strongest anymore either, by the way. Right. Bob, let's talk about your career. How do you feel how it ended? Is there more you wanted to do? Do you feel like you you played your part? You played it well? What do you feel about the entirety of your career? And I'm talking all the way back into corrections. Well, I think things happen for a reason. You know, like I said, I always wanted to be a city cop, uh, which I forgot to say was three days before I graduated the academy. I was on the phone with my wife and she says to me, NYPD just called you. I'm like, I just spent three and a half months in Glencoe, Georgia. I am not going to sit. I'm not one for school. At the famous Fletzy. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I think every day is a learning experience. I, I think, you know, I enjoyed what I did. You know, they say the war on drugs. <clears throat> I like to believe, you know, drugs are going to keep on coming in. I really enjoyed working money laundering because we were very successful at seizing money. And I equate that to if any of us lose our wallet today and there's money in it, it's be, oh, oh, my God, we lost money. So I think I like to believe we hurt them. We're not going to stop them. But I think we you know what I mean? Like it hurt. And that 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 was a good feeling. Uh, would I have done anything different? Probably not. Uh, you know, you, I learned so much about people like you don't realize like there's so many different types of people. And that helped me in my coaching career. You know, there's some that do. There's some that say they do. There's some that are always going to be jealous of you. They're always going to have something to say. And then there's ones which I have such great friends that I'm still friends with. You know, Joe and I have become friends, you know, over some wise ass comment I made to him. And, and I think that's the important thing in life that you can look back know what you did. And, and it's funny because when I wrote the book, I've been saying it for years, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book, I would write things down. You know, I didn't want to like stop this and that. So my son, Rob kept on pushing me, all oh, right, write it, write it, write it. So I started to write it. 
over the uh, pandemic when it first started. And the only one that I really asked for advice was Joe, because I didn't want anybody to know. So, you know, I would show it to Joe and he would always say to me, hey, listen, you know, what, what he's telling me, don't take it the wrong way. And I'm not going to take it to a guy that wrote, you know, 12 books, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, we're just getting ready to talk about that. Yeah, it, it could be little things like, you know, I, I use the word buddy too much or I mention his name too much. or I mentioned some and I did everything he had, you know, because I learned something. And in my book, I could say, I've read a lot of books, you know, law enforcement books. I always believe in a team concept. You know, there's a lot of egos in both professions, law enforcement and basketball. And I, I like to give credit was credit was due, you know, and, and that's what I did in my book. I, one of my friends, Dennis Cavalier, retired sergeant said, if everybody buys a book that you mentioned the name, I'm going to have like 2000, <laughs> I'm going to have 2000 books sold. But, you know, I, I just, that was to me writing the book kind of, you know, and, and I really didn't knock anybody. I don't want to be negative. I just want to think of the good. People have to be aware of some of the bad, but without really attacking somebody. And, and it was a, to me, it was a great experience. I could look back and have a smile on my face, you know, and that's what it's about. Joe, I want to ask you, what was the thing that told you it's time to retire? <laughs> well, what happened was, and I, not to get into uh, into dirty laundry, putting it out there, but I had gotten into a, a situation with an SAC. Uh, I had 17 years on the job. Uh, and uh, it just got to be too unbearable. So uh, I quit after 17 years. And I must say, I'm the only FBI agent that ever quit on the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I was on vacation. And uh, it, it's like I say, not to air dirty laundry. And it's it's too long of a story. But one day, you know, I, <clears throat> I just picked up the phone and called headquarters and told them I, I resigned. Uh, so I was out for, for like three years and then was asked to come back. Uh, so I did, uh, I went back in, in, and, uh, uh, the only caveat was that I had to go through 22 weeks of uh, new ages training again mm. <laughs> at, uh, I guess I was, 49 or 50 years old, I'm going through 22 weeks of new agents training with, with new agents in their mid and late twenties. But I was always in shape. So, uh, and then I had to re I had to retire then at 57. So when I, you know, you have to retire, uh, at 57 years old. So that's basically why, uh, uh, why I got out is I, you know, mandatory age of 57. So let's talk about retirement. Cause that kind of ends this entire conversation. Uh, you guys seem to have, be having a great time in retirement. Uh, as Bob mentioned, Joe, you've written like 1400 books, uh, <laughs> since you retired. There's so many, I can't even name them all. Uh, you have become, you know, kind of uh, the the face of undercover work. Bob, you've written a book. 
been in the junior college basketball hall of fame as a coach. Like you guys have done it. You took that second chapter of your life and really did something with it. And that's a problem that we talk about on this show a lot is that you see a lot of these guys that had these jobs, whether it be law enforcement, military, whatever. And they had this mission, this directive, this, this thing to strive for every day. And then they retire and they're dead within four months. They're dead within the first year. They become alcoholics or addicted to drugs or whatever it may be. You guys took it the bull by the horns and really took that second chapter of your life and made something with it. The question to you both is, what was it that made you do that? Because a lot of guys just retire and that's it. You guys took off in a whole nother direction. Well, I think I was lucky in that uh, uh, people were after, you know, after all my uh, my testimony. And I mean, I never thought that uh, that this case would would have blown up like it did. I mean, you know, it was the first case was national news all over the country and, and all over, the, you know, all over the world. Actually, you know, FBI agents spent six years undercover with the mafia uh, and. I had been then, I, you know, uh, not me, but uh, individuals, you know, the Bureau, uh, individuals start getting calls from uh, book publishers. And I had a good friend, uh, Lou DiGiamo, who was a, a, a casting director. Uh, and, you know, he said, hey, you got a you got a dynamite story here. And I said, well, Lou, you know, I can't do anything because I'm, I'm still uh, uh, I'm still in the Bureau. I'm, I'm still testifying. I mean, uh, my book didn't, you know, I didn't do my book till seven years uh, after I, uh, after the, the case ended, uh, because I was, you know, I, I felt I was obligated to testify without any baggage. Uh, and that's what I did. Uh, so my book didn't come out to seven years later. And then, you know, with, with, uh, with the book came the movie, you know, movie offers. So I was, I was able to, uh, and I got interested in that because I, I knew once I left, I didn't want to go back into police work. I didn't want to become a private detective. I don't want to do any more investigating. Uh, <clears throat> so I got in, you know, I, I got into the, to that side of the movie business, uh, produced, you know, got some good stories, produced a couple movies, had a TV show written about me. Uh, and, uh, I got interested in, in, in that field because I, like I say, I didn't, I didn't want to get involved in police work, police work. Uh, I started teaching undercover schools because I thought, well, you know, I had a lot to impart, uh, and it wasn't doing investigative work. I didn't want any part of any part of that anymore, uh, because that's all I ever done, uh. So then, you know, I start writing the books. I did uh, some uh, some fiction and then some a couple nonfiction, uh, and it, you know, it, it, it to me it was uh, it, it it's all about keeping keeping your mind activated. You know, I mean, I was always uh, I was always a guy that worked out, you know, in the gym, et cetera, et cetera, but. Uh, you you got to keep active. I don't play golf. Uh, I li- I like to fish, and 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 that's it. So, uh, being involved in uh, in scripts and and and, uh, uh, and 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 the books, 
it, it keeps your mind, it, you know, again, it keeps your mind active. And that, I think that's the thing is you gotta, you gotta keep active uh, that way. Uh, if I may, I got a podcast. If, if I can mention that, it's, Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, deep cover, the real Donnie Brasco. Now there's several deep cover podcasts out there, <laughs> but you know, you got to go deep cover the real Donnie Brasco. I got two uh, seasons in, um, uh, finished the second season. And, uh, <clears throat> I'm also involved in another, uh, uh, endeavor regarding podcasts called the undercovers. And, uh, the first season is with my friend, Eddie Follis, who is a retired DEA agent who did a lot of undercover work with DEA. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> we just finished, uh, I think I did eight episodes uh, with uh, with the undercovers, uh, and uh, also involved in that. As as far as uh, being on it with me is uh, the actor Ed O'Neill and Ray Liotta. Uh, hopefully, that'll be coming out in in March. Uh, so to me, it's all about keeping your mind active, you know, and interacting with with people other than people that are in law enforcement, you know, and, uh, again, you know, I, I do undercover schools. I was doing a lot of undercover schools overseas, uh, for, uh, for the state department and, and for DOJ, but COVID COVID shut that down, uh, because we haven't been able to do any overseas travel. Uh, so, but it's basically keeping busy doing, you know, other than than, than law enforcement uh, investigative stuff. Bob, to you. Well, you know, I was coaching basketball up until probably about a year ago in college. I'll still coach during the summer. I did it last year for South Florida Elite. They have a uh, unsigned senior team, maybe four tournaments, and you know, trying to help kids get into college. I was successful. Got a few in last year. I do that. Um, I may be writing a second book. It's funny. I couldn't even write a term paper in college. I wrote a 400-page book. But the other thing, too, is uh, Joe forgot to mention, once a week, twice a week, we have our coffee club, and we call it the OCCB, like in New York, you know, they're the Organized Crime Control Bureau. Well, ours is called the Organized Coffee Club Boys, and we meet once a week. So it's funny. It's a lot of ex-cops, so we just sit there, and we have a blast, and we've met a lot of new friends from there, and we try to do that once a week. So that, that's a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, now uh, two of my grandkids, my daughter has, you know, and her husband have the two kids here. So last night was soccer night. Last Saturday was baseball. Hopefully I'll get to see my other son's grand, my other grandson in Atlanta. And I have another son that lives up in Orlando. So you try to keep busy with family. And I like going to the gym. You know, I try to hit the gym five nights, you know, five days, five nights a week and just keeping busy, you know, and I actually, uh, somebody got me a little part-time gig the other, this past weekend, driving some couple around. So, and I do uh, maybe once, twice a month with the uh, MMA fights, boxing, and bare knuckle as a state investigator. So I, just to keep a little busy, it's just to get out of the house as well. Nice. Uh, where can people find you if they want to go past here? Um, Bob, let's start with you. Where could they find me? 
on the internet, social media, oh, anything like that. <laughs> oh, in the post office, you could uh, <laughs> use a picture of me. Like, no. <laughs> well, I, I'm on social media, and don't even ask. I mean, I'm on, I know I'm on Facebook, and on social media, I think I'm uh, Stockman Twenty Two. Or and oh, we also there's another one inside both courts with uh, what do you call that little lower casing, whatever. Underscore. Yeah, underscore. That's it. I can't. I'm brain dead this morning. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's inside both courts, underscore Donnie Brasco. So I have a, an Instagram with that. So, uh, I mean, that's the easiest way. And I'll put all the links to that for you guys. Joe, anywhere people can find you other than the podcasts? Yeah, they can uh, get in touch with my agent, Frank Wyman, uh, at the Literary Agency in New York City. And, uh, the number is 917-701-8503. Frank okay. Oh, I forgot. And my book, like Joe's, uh, could be found on Amazon.com. There you go. Uh, anywhere else that uh, people can be looking for you in the future? I know that you might have a second book coming out. Joe, do you have anything planned for us? Uh, not a second book, like a 1900 book? <laughs> well, I'm, actually, I'm, I'm working on a couple uh, TV shows that – that I'm uh, pitching with uh, some other couple other individuals. Yeah. Good, good guys. Uh, I appreciate it so much. You coming on. I know that we had a lot of technical issues. We had to make this a two day event, but I'm so happy that it got done. Both the books that are on the screen right now are fantastic. Bob, if you couldn't write a term paper, you sure turned it around. Cause it's fantastic. Uh, Joe, fantastic book on your life and really getting the inside feelings of of everything out if you want to check these guys out i'll have all the links in the show you can catch them on instagram facebook they've got a couple of projects coming out bob probably has a second book coming out you can find both their books on amazon you can find them on kindle and i'll put links to them in the show if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. You can see what the guys look like, what the books look like, and then we'll include a couple more pictures as we're talking so that you can see what we're talking about. Also, guys, check out our partners at Tier 1 Outdoors. They are a 501c3 corporation that takes special forces, law enforcement and military personnel suffering from PTSD on hunting and fishing trips in order to work through that PTSD and also badass boxes where they are an organization, another 501 C three that sends care packages to special operators all over the world in the worst places so that they can get a little feeling of back home. Make sure you check out this next week's podcast. Make sure that you keep coming back every week because the best stories are true. And I give them to you guys. That's going to be the show that's bob that's joe thank you guys so much for coming on that's going to be it i'm dj we'll catch you guys on the next one see you later thank you thank you